I believe the Beatitudes and the Similitudes are the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5 uh, through 7. And at the conclusion of the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses, he gives two metaphors, and you know them, we've talked about them already here, they're salt and light. He says, you are the salt of the earth. I want to talk about the salt salt and the light, and I'm going to give this message the title this morning, Two Promises and Two Warnings. Two Promises and Two Warnings. There are two promises that the Lord Jesus gives and two very serious warnings that are, that, are, that are directly implied. And those are the things I'd like for us to think about this morning as we study Matthew chapter 5 and verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Two promises here that are given are these metaphors. You, those multitudes that had gathered to hear the Lord Jesus, the disciples that had gathered in the inner circle to hear the Lord Jesus, he says, you, even though you might be, in the previous verses, you may be persecuted, you may be poor in spirit, you are the salt of the earth. And then he said, you are the light of the world. These are promises, promises of effectiveness, promises of influence. He says, you, even in the light of all of those things, though you may feel weak, though you may be the off-scouring of society, though you may be persecuted, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Let's talk about the salt of the earth. First understand, when a follower of Jesus Christ, who follows Jesus in true righteousness, he, as a person follows Jesus in true righteousness, he is going to influence the society in which he lives for the good. If you are a true follower of Christ, with true righteousness, then you are going to have an influence on the people who live around you. Bible scholars believe that the primary reference to salt here is that of a, a, an agent to keep the meat, say, from corrupting. This would have been a a picture that would have been really understandable by anybody that Jesus was talking to at the time. He probably was within sight of the Sea of Galilee. There were fishermen in the crowd, and certainly people that ate fish in the crowd. And to preserve these fish, they were packed in salt to preserve them. We are not the salt of heaven. We are not the salt of the church. Jesus said we are the salt of the earth. Christian people, disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, who have the true righteousness that he's talking about in chapter 5 and verse 20, have an influence on society where they help to preserve or keep it from corruption or keep it from rotting, getting it worse than it, than it already is. I personally believe, and we've talked about this before, we may talk about it in the, in the future, I personally believe, and I don't say with any delight, that I, I believe our nation, though it's been blessed of God in a great way, in the past, is currently, I believe, under the judgment of God. And in a time when a nation is under the judgment of God, or in danger of being under the judgment of God, why hasn't God just wiped it out altogether? I think the only answer to that is because of the presence of believers in the culture that are, that are, that are slowing down the process of corruption in the culture. Genesis chapter 18, you have that story where... Um, 
there is the appeal of Abraham about the city of, of Sodom and Gomorrah to God, and he's appealing to God to preserve, the, not to fall in judgment on the city if there are just a handful of righteous people there. And God promises if there were just a handful, a remnant of righteous people there, that there wouldn't be judgment on the city. Probably one of the reasons why America doesn't have full, overt uh, judgment of God. He's turning us over to ourselves, but there are still the presence of, of some, many professing believers, and some, a few, genuine uh, believers here. And so when a follower of Christ has true righteousness, he keeps society from being, becoming totally corrupt. The second thing to understand here is this. When a follower of Christ relinquishes the, his role that he's been assigned, then he loses his distinctiveness, and he loses his effectiveness. So, so you, are, you are salt. You're a believer, you're salt. So you have an influence where you work. You have an influence where you live. And your influence is not to completely take away all the corruption that's there, but you slow down the process of the corruption that's there. But when you, as a follower of Christ, relinquish that role, then what happens is you lose your distinctiveness. You lose your ability to influence the culture. That's what it's saying. You are the salt of the earth. But it, immediately then, the promise is short, but immediately the but comes in. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor or its effectiveness. The word flavor there is kind of untranslatable. In the Greek, it looks like moron. It means that you have, uh, you're a simpleton. You've lost your effectiveness, simply what the word means. A salt that has lost its effectiveness, what good is it then, in other words? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And there were in that culture uses of salt to mix with plaster to put in the upper room to, to, uh, in upper rooms of houses so people could actually walk on them. You know, we commonly see salt thrown into the street. True, pure, unadulterated salt would always have its effectiveness, but when it gets mixed with other things and it's no longer distinct, it's no longer distinctive, it's not useful anymore. And that's true of you. And that's true of me. We're only really going to be effective if we're different. If we're the same, we're not going to be effective. Now, their whole, their whole philosophy of evangelism that says you've got to be the same to be effective, but Jesus said you've got to be different to be effective. So if you want to influence people, to, 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 you, want to, you want to slow down the corruption that's all around us, then it, it takes the presence of true Christians who are really practicing righteousness, and God says he will use that. Otherwise, we'll be good for nothing. Um, God expects all of us to give verbal public testimony. God expects you to give verbal public testimony where you are. And I'm going to just challenge you to think about that. Wherever you are, do people know because of the, your own word, because of your own testimony, that you are a devout believer in Jesus Christ? Because he expects it. Let me give you some examples of that. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do you give verbal public testimony of your relationship to Christ? Romans 10 says this. You're familiar with this. 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In other words, anyone who really, truly believes in Jesus unto salvation from their heart is open about it and gives verbal testimony that they are Christian. And the people around them know they're Christian because they say they're Christian. I always thought that when I was a 10-year-old kid going forward in the invitation to kind of renew my spiritual life, though I'd been saved, I think, maybe earlier than that, the, the pastor had somebody coach me and say, read your Bible every day. 
pray every day, and witness every day. It's just basic. Tell people, let people know every day that you're a believer. Everybody who knows you ought to have heard you give a public, verbal testimony that you're a Christian. Is that true about you? Because it's not true about you. You're not salt, and you may not even be converted. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 says that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves as the manner of some is, but we're to exhort one another. And daily, so much the more as you see the day approaching, Hebrews 3 and 13 talks about the daily part. But what happens when our talk and our walk don't line up? What happens when we, when we talk about being a Christian or we confess in some way being a Christian or we kind of let people know that we're a Christian, but our life doesn't line up with that? You remember when David fell into sin, he seemed to have jumped into sin. And this great, horrifying moral failure uh, took place. And then David went beyond that, even to being complicit in the murder of an innocent man. It was a horrible thing. And he confessed his sin, and he acknowledged his sin, and God said to him, you're still going to be punished. Though you have acknowledged your sin, you're still going to be punished. And and the reason he gave him was because you have given the enemies of the Lord a great occasion to blaspheme. What happens when somebody's walk and their talk don't line up? Well, what happens when our walk and our talk don't line up is that, have you ever noticed that the ungodly mock believers, and they mock Christ, and they mock the church when we don't live up to our own advertising claims? And you hear it all the time. And they're eager to see that. Some people who are unbelievers are actually eager for believers to abandon the life, their, their Christian life and testimony. Um, maybe because it's, a, it's um, a burden to them because they're convicted about it. I believe there are other people who actually secretly hope that there might be some truth to those claims. Even while they're mocking, they kind of hope that there's something true, but then they don't want to believe it. And certainly then when a Christian's not faithful, they're disillusioned, and they just they mock the Lord. I believe there are other times people who are darkly eager to drag Christians into the same kind of debauchery in which they're living. And you know what I'm talking about because you work there, you live there. That's the way it is for you. In other words, you're talking, you're walking out of line up. And you can't do that yourself. You have to have the help of, you have to be converted. You have to have the help of the Lord. Third observation then is when a follower of Christ loses this distinction, then he forsakes this high calling. Let me just put this in a feminine because we're talking here about the bride of Christ. When a follower of Christ loses her distinction, she forsakes her high calling for duties that are beneath the dignity of the bride of Christ. You're the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ should have poise and dignity and beauty. And when you forsake your high calling of being salt and slowing down, retarding the corrupting influence in the society, and you're like the society that's around you, then you're mud-wrestling bride of Christ. I have examples of this I want you to think about. But before I say them, think about this. If Christians and the church don't do what the church was designed by Jesus to do, if the church and Christians don't retard corruption by holy living... Then we are destined and we are held in, we're to, to be held in contempt and to be subject to ridicule and to be seen as worthless and contemptible. And that's what Jesus said. Jesus said that would happen. Do what you're supposed to do or they're going to not value you at all. Trample you underfoot. You're useless. In, in other words, why would anyone value a church full of people who are no different than they are? Wouldn't they find a much better use for their time on Sunday morning? Wouldn't they find something else to spend their money on rather than giving it to the church? Think about that. Recent reports have come to me, and I'm going to read most of this because I want to be accurate how I say it. Reports have come to me that have broken my heart. 
Reports of Bible college students who are professing Christians who regularly use the worst kind of profanity in their Christian college campus, even in the presence of young women. This is also taking place on the property of this church among our young people. Reports have come to me that I don't want to believe of immorality, of drunkenness, of partying, of lewd talk, filthy talk, profane talk, and behavior that are, that's not befitting children of God by people who say they're children of God. In these schools devoted uh, to training Christian leaders, if you think about it, the, there, are, there are young people that not only do these things, but they boldly defend themselves, and they're often defended by undiscerning foolish Christians. And they're also, also happy reports of good deeds. Um, often we hear of young people in these Bible institutes or Bible colleges who have exemplary Christian lives. We have examples among us of that. Reports, a report came to me last night of a young woman that rises every morning at 5 o'clock, seven days a week, turns on her light, spends time seeking God. Her mouth isn't filthy. Her life isn't a bad testimony. She's a good testimony. Child of, of missionaries, I think, from Peru. A godly girl, but so in the minority, even at this Bible college, professing Christian musicians and, and athletes regularly and publicly say they're Christians, but they're public... Uh, they, also sees unrepentant drunkenness or drug use or immorality, profanity, divorce, unrepentant divorce, selfish materialism in their lives, even while they're saying they're Christians. A few years ago, the president of the National Association of Evangelicals was speaking publicly against homosexuality. This is the president of the National Association of Evangelicals that says that he represents millions of Christian people, millions upon millions of professing Christian people. He was speaking publicly against homosexuality and a man whom he had hired for immoral purposes and with whom he had abused drugs publicly exposed his hypocrisy jesus warned his followers not to lose their saltiness their moral and ethical distinction their talk and their walk has to line up for them to be salt of the earth their practice of true righteousness that's happening all around us can't we see when these kinds of things happen that god is trying to tell us something when will our hearts be broken in repentance. Think about this. The, the president, and I have no delight in this, the president of the National Association of Evangelicals involved in homosexual behavior and drug abuse, is that not a, is that, isn't that supposed to be a wake-up call to us? Shouldn't that be seen as a wake-up call to us? Professing Christians, I, I did a little research on a, a musician named Lil Wayne. He calls himself Lil Wayne. Our President Obama says... He uh, has the musician on his iPod. Lil Wayne's music is full of filthy sexual references and the worst kind of profanity. Uh, Lil Wayne has four children, two by his first wife. He has two others by women who he's never married, born about two months apart in 2009. He spent time in prison for drug use and weapons charges. But while all these things are taking place in his life, he also professes to believe in God and his son, Jesus Christ, and he says he reads his Bible. According to his Wikipedia article, which is verified by other references, Lil Wayne is a practicing Christian. He takes time to read his Bible regularly. And while playing at Newark Symphony Hall, Lil Wayne professed his belief in God and his son, Jesus. And then he asked the Newark crowd if they believed, and they responded affirmatively with a roar of approval. Best-selling Christian musician of all time, a number of years ago, crossed over into pop and secular music and more and more her recordings stirred up controversy because of their sensuality and suggestiveness. 
A few years ago, she divorced her husband and the father of her children, and she married a man that she had had an interest in before her divorce. After the divorce and remarriage, she promptly released an album of hymns that was pushed and featured prominently in Christian bookstores all over the country. And she's still a popular concert draw among Christians, sometimes singing with her new husband who divorced his wife and married her. Sometimes divorce is forced upon people and they have no choice. Other times the divorce is a result of one's own sin and disobedience to God. And there is forgiveness and restoration is possible. And folks are here are examples of that. But this singer has spent lots of money promoting herself, promoting her singing, promoting her books. She's had interviews with her husband on Larry King Live. She's continually in very public places. I listened very carefully and read very carefully for any admission of sin or guilt or personal remorse or repentance. I have never heard one. If she wanted to make that clear, she has the voice, she has the ear of people that she could have made that clear. And we're talking here about the best-selling Christian musician of all time. I don't want you to misunderstand my, my illustration here. I think God is eager to forgive sin. That's what we're saying here. That's what we're all about. I think God is eager to restore sinners, any kind of sin, the worst kind of sin. The scriptures are very clear about that. I know that God can use you again after a failure or else all of us would have to go hide under a rock. God can, hide, can use us again after failure. But there's one piece that cannot be missing if God would use us again. And that is clear and open grief and remorse over our sin and repentance. If that is missing, then, the, then it's not appropriate to extend what we call grace to a person who has not repented of their sin. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32 say, Furthermore, it's been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who's divorced commits adultery. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, that unrepentant adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And therefore, if I had a divorce in my life, God forbid, I would see to it that I saw it God's way, that I said what God says about it, and that I had been to the cross, and that my testimony was very clear about that, so that I would be confident that I had the gift of eternal life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11 through 11 repeat the same thing, giving examples of these things, including the immorality and the adultery. And, and the scriptures say those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is precisely what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's not start gathering stones right now. The real scandal is not the musicians. The real scandal is the people who don't have the discernment to recognize how dangerous that is. The real scandal is the fact that because there's so much residual guilt in the souls of professing Christians, there's very little or no grief over these things. And so we're losing our discernment, and because of that we're losing our distinction, and we're losing our ability to be salt and to retard the corruption in our world. And so the message of Jesus here should humble all of us. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's driving toward specific qualities of character that Christ, through his spirit, makes alive in the Christian life. And I want you to look at a list of these things. Start there in verse 21, and notice he talks about murder. As a person who is the salt of the earth, obviously regards human life. He doesn't get involved in any kind of murder. This would include the taking of human life of any kind. Jesus says this himself. So every once in a while you hear people who say they believe in abortion, but they're a follower of Jesus. This is not possible. If you believe in abortion and taking of human life, you're not a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus' teaching in verse 21 is not to commit murder. And so you might say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I believe that that's okay. You just, you, you're not a follower of Jesus. You're, you're a follower of the Jesus that you made up. 
but not the Jesus of the Bible. And this would be true beyond that. So you say, well, I've never committed murder, God forbid, abortion. Understand, listen, there's a path to the cross for any of you who may have been involved in that. And the grief hangs over your head and, the, and burdens your heart every night. There is a way to be forgiven, but it's the way of repentance, the way of the cross. And you're, re, you're, for, you're completely forgiven and you're restored and you can be emotionally restored. And the brokenness that you have in your life because of the sin that you committed, that can be reversed and used for the glory of God. And there are testimonies all over the world about that. But Jesus went even beyond that murder. He said, I'm, you, you've heard not to murder. You should know that. He says, but I say to you, you shouldn't even be angry with your brother. And that, that's going to hit all of us. Then he goes beyond that and he says, and he's not, in verse 22, you're not to use words that disregard people. This is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about being the salt of the earth. He's talking about being people who aren't re- reproachful in their speech toward other people, who don't call people names and, and demean other people, and they're not unkind and unloving to them. And obviously they're not angry and they're not murderers. They're not reproachful in their speech. Verse 23, the, it would include unity among brothers. In verse 27, obviously it would include sexual immorality, adultery. Verses 28 through 30, a section given to secret lust. It would include being free of secret thought life that's not pleasing to the Lord. This should silence all of us in submission to God. This should silence all of us in repentance. We shouldn't always just be looking at somebody whose sin is worse than ours. But when Jesus preaches this and he dials in on each one of these, he kind of, he kind of drills down. And he gets a basic idea that he drills down. He drills deep enough. He hits every single one of us. Am I right? He hits every single one of us. Here, let's, let's go on. Look at verse 20, 31. He's talking about divorce. In verse 33, dishonest words and deeds. In verse 38, retaliation and following. He talks about loving enemies. In verse 43, it gets a lot, it gets a lot more difficult. You know, I may have avoided like the big three. But do I have a genuine love for my enemies? Am I willing to say kind words about them and do good deeds and pray for them? Is that the kind of Christian you are? That's a salty Christian. That's an influential Christian. That's a distinct Christian. That's what Jesus is talking about. This is the message of the Jesus of the Bible. Materialism, greed, selfishness are addressed in chapter 6. And verse 19 talks about loving money and talks in chapter 6 about worry and fear and anxiety and comparing ourselves to people in the world and measuring ourselves by what they have and what they do. In chapter 7 and verse 1, he talks about people who maybe they have all that other stuff together, but they have a condemning spirit and they're eager to condemn other people. Chapter 7 and verse 1, and there's a whole, there's a whole riff there, if you will, on the lack of genuine love and false conversion toward the end of chapter 7, claiming to be saved when you don't have any real fruit or claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but really being on the broad road that leads to destruction and not on the narrow road that leads to life, or building your life on a false foundation, hearing the false foundation would be, as we said last week, hearing what God says, but not acting on it, not obeying it. You are the salt of the earth. My question, are you the salt of the earth? I'm just telling you. Use your mouth to be the salt of the earth. Use your life to be the salt of the earth. Use your iPod to be the salt of the earth. Use your Facebook to be the salt of the earth. Use your life to be the salt of the earth. Sit back and look at other people and nitpick their qualities. Look at the Sermon on the Mount and the teaching of Jesus Christ and your life, not somebody else's life, your life. And then when you go to bed at night and you have read the sermon that Jesus taught when he opened his public ministry and you ask yourself, is that kind of kingdom righteousness what characterizes my life? Because if that's true, you're going to have an influence, a growing influence on other people. Don't call yourself Christian if that's not true about you.
If that's not the beat of your heart, then don't call yourself Christian. Be Christian. Be Christian. And then acclaim Christ. And then have a life that backs up your claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if that's not true, take your name off the church rolls. Don't call yourself a Christian. Call yourself Mormon or something else. But don't call yourself a Christian because... You're, you're not going to help. You're not going to be a salt or influence. There are people out there who need to see somebody who's different. And that, that's the way it ought to be for you. Now, I say this with a great deal of thought as your pastor. I, this is one of those nice kind of benign kind of texts that you could kind of float over because it's so familiar to us. It's very lovely, you know. Be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But I don't think that's pleasing to the Lord. I think what we ought to do is kind of rub the salt in the wound a little bit and say, is this true about me? Could this be true in a greater way about me? Now, the second one is you are the light of the world. The world is a dark place, morally and spiritually dark. Ephesians 6 and verse 12 says, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we, we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. Colossians 1.13 says, We've been delivered from the power of darkness and we're translated or conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Darkness is, is ignorance of the gospel in particular. Ignorance especially of who God is, who Christ is. Darkness is used in the Bible as an example, of, used as, as descriptive of shameful deeds. The world is a dark place, morally and spiritually. And the church and the Christian, the follower of Christ, the one listening to the voice of Christ, is to enlighten the world. Jesus said this in John, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. I misspoke myself. I was inaccurate a few weeks ago. The week after Christmas, I said that Jesus stood and he declared on the, the, the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication that he was the light of the world. That was not accurate. It's in chapter 8. Feast of Dedication is in chapter 10. Feast of Tabernacles is in chapter 8. It was at the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus said that. I want to correct myself. But he did say it. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He said, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. If you were to take your Bible and you were to look in the book of John and just read through the book of John and you were to mark the places where Jesus said that he was the light, what you would see is that over and over again, Jesus said that he was the light in the dark world. And now Jesus says, but he says, as long as I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. And of course, he still is the light of the world. But he says to us, you are the light of the world. And so obviously the genuine light of the world is Jesus in in us or, or through us. Question, is that true about you? If darkness is ignorance of truth and ignorance of who God is and ignorance of who Jesus is and darkness is evil deeds and you're light, then you're the opposite of that. So whatever you do with your life is exposing who Jesus is and it's not involved in evil deeds. You're the opposite of that. It's the complete antithesis of that. It's the complete opposite of that. So is that true about you? This is the question that we ought to ask ourselves this morning. As we look on this lovely passage and we see these promises, these warnings that Jesus has given the, the, promise, the first promise is you are the salt of the earth. The warning is don't be thrown down and trodden underfoot because you're no different than the world. See it? The second promise is you are the light of the world. And later on he's going to say, you don't put that light under a bushel. You put it on a lampstand so everybody can see it. And this is the church, the Christian, the believer, the disciple of Christ is the light of the world. There should be this contrast between, between light and darkness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, it says, Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness and lawlessness? And what, what communion or oneness of spirit has light with darkness? doesn't mean we don't love people who are in the dark, but we don't have communion with people who are in the dark. We can't confuse that. 
I can't take time now, but if you would take your Bibles and study this afternoon, perhaps, or this week, chapter 5 of Ephesians, chapter 1 through 8, it's just shocking almost to, to recognize God expects a distinction, a clear difference between believers and unbelievers. And he talks about the light, that, that our moral behavior and our ethical living and our love that's in our hearts and our spirit-filled lives would expose the darkness all around us just by being who we are. That's what it's saying. This is also true in Ephesians 2 and, and in Romans chapter 13, verses 9 through 14. Listen to this one. In, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 8, it says, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. and We are not of the night and nor of the darkness. And let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Listen, you might be here today and you aren't a believer. You're kind of still in the dark. And maybe you're just kind of paying attention, you're listening, and, you, and I, I'm so glad you're here. Let me say this to you. Compare and contrast. Notice the darkness and all the stuff that goes with the darkness. You hear it talks about drunkenness and all the kinds of things, the immorality, all the things that go with that. An empty, immoral, drunken life, those kinds of things. They're over on the dark side. Jesus says, step away from that and be like these people, and we've got to be these people, so the people over there look over here, and they like what they see because we're the light of the world. We don't just like, oh, I'm a Christian too. Let's have a beer together. Are you serious? You really think that's effective evangelism? Bring me your converts, you know. We'll teach them right. That's not right. That's not good. That's not safe. That's dangerous. That's damning. That's going to that's gonna take some of our kids to hell. That's what that's going to do. We can't be for that. We must stand against that. We must pray against that. We must live a different kind of a life. Don't listen to the lies that are just washing over our culture from evangelical voices. Listen to the voice of Jesus Christ himself and what he said. Read this sermon into your heart and be the light of the world. Like a city on the hill where Jesus spoke. He could have had two things in, that would have come to the minds of people. Maybe a couple of these things would have come to the, the hearers. One would certainly be the fact that where he was standing was in elevation. And, and there were houses, commonly limestone houses, that would have the sun glinting off of them. He could have gestured to a city that was shining on a hillside and said to them this beautiful picture, You're like a city on a hill. You're like a lamp that's on a stand, not under a bushel. He used these two pictures, these further metaphors of the, of the light, like a city on the hill. Certainly during feast days, Jerusalem was lit up with a great, brilliant light. And it was on a hill. And people could have seen the beauty of Jerusalem gleaming in the night. And that would have been a picture that would have been in many of their hearts. And this is the beauty that God wants us to see of ourselves. We, even though we're who we are, and we don't have our own righteousness, and we need the righteousness of Christ, and we must follow Him in order to know Him, even though those things are all true about us, we have the potential of being a salt of the earth and the light of the world. So if you're in one of those Bible colleges and you're getting ready to go to Bible college, you'll be the salt of the earth in that Bible college. Amen? You'll be the light of that world in the Bible college. You're still going to be a minority there. And some of you aren't going to Bible college tomorrow. Amen? You're going to a factory where, pe- where you're working with a, with a lewd bunch of people who don't know God and they love to mock God and they love to curse God. You'll be a light. You'll be distinct. You'll be different. And how beautiful that will be to your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, when He sees there shining on the hillside where He's put you a light of radiant testimony to Jesus Christ. Now that is a, something that we should be called back to as a church. Young person, if you're looking for something better than like getting a job, making some money, trying to get up north every 
once in a while and maybe having some kids. You're looking for something that's bigger than that. Then I would just say, open the Bible and read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, no one has ever called young people to anything more grand and beautiful than what Jesus called us to when He said, you can be the salt of the earth and you can be the light of the world. You think about that. That's what you should commit your heart to. And I would today, as a young man, if I was a young man again, I'd be on my face and I would say, Jesus, take me, all of me, and make me the salt of the earth and make me the light of the world. I don't want to have anything to do with those other things that would drag me away from that. Don't run for the hills. Don't hide out until Jesus comes back. You're the salt of the earth. You're supposed to go out there tomorrow. You're supposed to be among lost people. That's the way it is. You see the two things and how they balance each other? You're the salt of the earth. Don't be like the earth. Be distinct and different or you're going to be worthless. But you're the light of the world and don't hide under a bushel. Go out there and be the light of the world. You see it? Brilliant teaching. Of course, it was Jesus. Brilliant symmetry in these pictures that he's given to us. We are both to be distinct from the world and have a radical heart of identification with the sinful world in which we live, the people who we love and cherish for Christ's sake. We care about them. We don't stand above them with our nose in the air like we're morally superior. We are not morally superior to them. Some of us have been kind of culturated not to do some of the dumb things they've done, but we're not morally superior to them. If there's any good in us, it's the evidence that Jesus has worked within us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. That's the thing that makes us different. If anything makes us different. So we don't work with lost people with this kind of haughty, proud, pharisaical attitude like, too bad you're not wonderful like I am. That's not the light of the world. That's not the salt of the earth. Now, the method of enlightenment is good works. This is interesting. Look at the passage. They, Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and then it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. This is the method of enlightenment. This would include speaking and working, but the Scriptures are full of this for everybody. Interesting. This is a huge theme in the New Testament. And so maybe you are not a preacher and you're not going to get in this pulpit and give a talk, but you can powerfully enlighten the world by doing good works wherever you are. Hear me now. Hear me now. I think there are many of you men and you have skills and you have abilities and you're, you're in places where other people aren't. And you men can do good works in those places and connect those good works with Christ and you will enlighten that place where you are. You women in places where nobody else is. And sometimes you come to me and you say, Pastor, pray for me. It is so discouraging where I work. The people are against me and there are people that don't love the Lord. And it's a hard place. God has you shining there. And one of the things that keeps you from being corrupted is by your shining. Be a testimony. If you make a mistake, go back and ask forgiveness. And tell them, because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you shouldn't have said those words. Some of you have gone in, on this property or in places of business, and you have used words that are not becoming to a follower of Jesus Christ. To your great shame, would you please go back tomorrow? And would you get those people? And would you say to them, you know, I was wrong when I did that. Will you please forgive me? And I will tell you, your testimony may be restored. And you live for Christ enough, and maybe that person will be rescued from hell because you're a sincere Christian. Not a self-righteous Christian, but a sincere Christian. Ephesians 2 and verse 10 says, We're His workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in these good works. Women are told to be, to be distinct in their good works. And specifically, you know, a woman has a tendency to want to look beautiful, and I think we all appreciate that. And the New Testament clearly always takes that and says, it's wonderful that you look beautiful. And there's a bit of a premium on beauty in the Bible. Frequently the Bible will talk about beauty, but it will also say beauty can be vain. In other words, it can be empty. And beauty can be deceitful. It can, like, you can kind of fake somebody out with your outward strength or beauty. 
I know certainly beauty is temporary. Say, oh, ouch with me. Yeah, beauty is temporary. It's going away. It's going away. But this good works, this is something that will beautify a woman's character all of her life, doing good works. And the Bible often talks about older women that are still doing good works, and because they're still doing good works, they're beautiful. And so I would say to you, this is what the Scriptures say to widows that are being considered for the the church relief, well-reported for good works, that she's brought up children. If she's brought up children, I like that part. If she's brought up children, is that a good work? Of course it is. How? Seriously, you got six amens and you're all children. All of you are children. You had a mother and you get it. If that wasn't a good work, then your mother did something bad when she brought you up. Work with me on this. Think about it. Okay, so it's, that's good works. Okay, if she's brought up children, that's a big deal. All right? Are you going to make me park on that for a while? Are we going to have to do a series on that? If, if a woman's brought up children, that's a... Hey, let's just stop there for a minute. If you're a woman and you're thinking about having children, go for it. It's a good work. You think, well, but I want to have an impact on the world. Have some babies. Have some babies. Raise them for the Lord. I'm serious. If you can, some of you, I know you're here, your heart is grieved. You would. You say, Pastor, I would do that if I could. Some of you say, if I could do it over again, I would. Some of you say, I've tried and I can't. Some of you are sitting here and you could. I just say to you, that's a good work. You raise a child for the Lord, and you love and you nurture that child. That's fun. That's wonderful. That's a blessing. So I commend it. See, you need to say amen, and we don't have these little problems like this. Okay, thank you. Um, then pastors, it says, First Timothy 5.25, likewise, good works. Men, pastors are to have good works, some clearly evident. Wealthy people are to, it's okay to be wealthy as long as you let them do good and be rich in good works, according to First Timothy 6 and verse 18. And wealthy would include all of us on a world scale. Church leaders, elders, deacons, pastors, to be filled with good works. They're to be, in, first, in Titus 2 and verse 7, to be a pattern of good works. And all of us are told in Titus 2:14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify us for himself, a people who are zealous for good works. Do you get this? You say, I wish I could play a euphonium. I'm like, I wish I could pronounce euphonium. You know, I wish I could play a mandolin. I don't know how to do that. You know, I'm not going to be playing a euphonium anytime in the near future. I'm not going to be playing the piano. It's not going to happen. Not here, not now. And you might think, uh, this is not what I do. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, what you do, you do it for the glory of God. With a testimony, you do, there's such power in that. And people that are around you are going to be, be, be paying attention. Hey, for the glory of God, wake up whoever next to you right now. We're almost done, all right? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12 says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may buy your good works which they observe. And that's happened in this church. Where people have worked with some of you and have said, I'm not a Christian, and it's a fuddy-duddy church, and the music's all old and fuddy-duddy, and the past is too long, but the people are nice, and I'm going to go figure out what that's all about. And they're still with us. That's kind of cool, I think. And that's what First Peter chapter 2 and verse 12 says. What's the motive of this? Now we're at the end. What's the motive? Let your light so shine before men they may see your good works. That's the method. And the motive and the result is they glorify God, which is what it's all about anyway. That's why we're here, to glorify God. Our primary influence is not legislation that forces people to act as if they were followers of Jesus when they really aren't followers of Jesus. You know, getting out the vote for Jesus. That's not it. 
Our primary influence will be felt when growing numbers of true and genuine believers enlighten the world and the retard decay through good works and soul winning. So you see, it's our primary message. It's the message of the gospel. Our primary method is the gospel. The primary way to enlighten our world and to change our world is to give them the gospel. So are you doing that? And if, if you're not, why don't you have breakfast with somebody this weekend and invite them out and say, hey, let me give you the gospel. You see what I'm saying? Or, or your own children. You sit, how long has it been since you sat down with your own children and in a loving, gracious way you kind of went over, this is what we believe. What do you believe? And maybe you took your daughter or your son on a little breakfast appointment or you took on a little ride in the country and you spent some time with them and you just kind of dug into their soul a little bit and you found out what's going on down inside their heart so that you could appeal to them even if they don't obey. You appeal to them with tears running down your face that to make Christ known is the highest calling in all of the world. What are these good works specifically? Well, they're listed here in the sermon and you don't have to overlook these things. They're very clear. And though you may be poor in spirit... And though you may be meek, and though you may be merciful, not the power broker type, and though you may have all of these qualities that, don't, that the Lord Jesus listed in the Beatitudes as things that don't seem like you're a leader and a mover and a shaker, he gets to the end and he's, and though you even may be persecuted, he says, but you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. So go get them. That's what I'm telling you. Go get them. I mean, wait till this, we're going to have an evening service. Then go get them. You know, after that, go get them. Be the salt of the earth. Be the light of the world. Restaurant today. You be the salt and be the light. My daughter was in the beauty school, and we kind of like weren't sure we wanted to do that. And so she went off to this beauty school. She didn't have a car of her own at the time, so I drove her every day. And the girls in the beauty school, most of them weren't Christian girls. A few of them were. Probably most of them really weren't. And they're precious girls and nice girls. So she goes to this beauty school, and she's the little homeschool girl, you know. She'd never been off, and, and she's always worked in the Christian ministry, and so she hasn't been out in a place alone where there are a lot of people who don't know the Lord. And so it tore my heart out to drive her up there. It wasn't like she was in kindergarten or anything, but it was hard for me, you know. So I would pray for her, and she would get out, and she would, little thing would go in there. A lot of times I'd go in the morning, I'd take her little stuff. She has so, paraphernalia heavier than her to beautify people, and I would open up the trunk, and I'd give her a little something to eat, or I'd pray with her, and I'd, she'd go in, and she'd come back with stories about the girls that were there, who, who were sweet girls, who needed the Lord. And um, she made friends, and she had her conflict. She was imperfect. She wouldn't want me to tell you she's perfect. She's certainly not, and her dad's not. But I watched this happen day after day after day, and there were many times we thought, let's just ask her not to do that anymore because I hate seeing her out there where she's exposed to things that some of the precious young women in our culture have been exposed to and they've been so hurt, they've been so run over by the sin of this culture and because of that, there's a hardness in the soul sometimes and a misunderstanding of the things of the Lord and so she saw, so she would come home with these stories and then they would be our stories to pray about and think about. And as she got toward the end, finally, she kind of hung in there. She was going to graduate from this school. She would tell stories of people who had been very kind to her, friends that had befriended her and that loved her and that liked her. They weren't Christians necessarily. Some of them were and some of them weren't. Most of them maybe weren't, but they respected her testimony. And they asked her a lot of questions. And they listened to her, and she tried to witness to them. A day came when she graduated from the school we all went together to watch her little graduation, which wasn't really a big affair. It was just everybody kind of got together. And, but her friends gave her things. They gave her flowers, and they gave her gifts, and they said very nice things about her. It was obvious to me that she had a, a testimony of love among the girls that she was with, that he cared about her, and she cared about them. 
And as we walked out that day, I had a distinct feeling in my soul of the light going out of that place. And those precious girls all in there who need the Lord, who don't know the ways of the Lord, they've heard the name of Jesus, but it's been so messed up and distorted, they don't really usually get it. And there's the believer that she's walking out, and it's like there's a little bit of light that just goes out. I was just thinking how wonderful it would be if I could commission every one of you to go wherever you go tomorrow and just be a real light. You're going to get some stuff ironed out first in your life. Take care of business with God today. You're going to take some stuff off your Facebook. Get your heart right with God. Do what's right. Have a testimony. Ask forgiveness for some things that you've done wrong. Some secret sins that need to be confessed. Start over today. and Be a man after God's own heart. Get on your knees and say, God, from today on, with your help, I will be a man after God's own heart. I'm sorry for the sin that's been in my life that's kept me from being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. There are people out there who need that salt and who need that light, and you should love them, and you should influence them, and you can. Now, if, this, if your influence is being diluted, your light hidden, may God burden you. Burden you in your heart once again to hear the words of Christ. Claim the promises of Christ and heed the warnings of Christ and live out the righteousness of Christ and hear the call of the kingdom of Christ in your own soul.